I see who is here. So were you able to get those biopsy on the other patient or? Yeah, I was. Okay. Okay, I think we, we can start. Okay. Hi, Yogesh. Hi, Dr. Thomas. How are you? Pretty good. Nice to have you. Oh, thank you. Yeah, so we have um, today's, we have uh, Dr. Sengvi, who is uh, going to share uh, two cases, uh, very interesting case where we um, also invited Dr. Nestor to be a consultant for this case. Uh, thank you both. And then um, we have another case uh, from Dr. Nuruddin that we saw uh, less than two weeks ago. So um, just might as well start. Um, oh. Hello, everyone. Uh -huh. Good afternoon. Okay. Okay, so um, I will start with um, this first case. So I'll let the, the Dr. Sengvi um, uh, tell us about the history, and then we'll follow with the biopsy. Okay, uh, this is a 23-year-old uh, transgender male who's actually uh, phenotypically and genotypically a female was referred by a PCP for an abnormal creatinine in December. She stated that she was in a usual health uh, up until the summer of 2020 when she started noticing some weight gain and having edema extending all the way up to her thigh. She was treated by diuretics by her PCP. Uh, I wasn't able to ascertain if she had any lab work done prior or before. She was also diagnosed of having hypertension for which she was started on lisinopril in April. Um, her past medical history, uh, basically she has this history of hypermobility spectrum disorder where she said since uh, early childhood, she's been having issues with sub subluxation of her joints, predominantly of her shoulder joints. Um, which up until the summer of last year, she was eventually referred to a um, hypermobility uh, uh, to a specialist at the university, thinking whether this was an Heller-Danlos syndrome. Apparently her wife, his, her mother also has a similar disorder. Based on the records, I really don't think she fulfilled all the criteria for having Heller-Danlos syndrome. Then she has history of hypertension diagnosed in April of last year. She has a history of recurrent ear infection. The last episode was probably the month when I saw her, has history of ADHD, depression, and anxiety. Um, next. So, she had this history when she was like 14 years old. She was hospitalized in the children's hospital in St. Louis with high degree of fever of 104, myalgia and headache. Her workup basically showed neutropenia and anemia. She had a biopsy, bone marrow biopsy done and it was more of normal cellular lineage. Uh, based on the records, what I saw, they labeled it as more of a viral infection at that time. Her uh, family history, her father died at 
40 because of alcohol abuse, um, uh, died at the age of 40. I don't know the exact cause why he died. He did have a history of alcohol abuse and schizophrenia, whereas mother who is alive, it's 58, with history of hypertension, joint hypermobility, and hypothyroidism. So her hemodynamically, she looked pretty okay. When I saw her, she really didn't have much of edema in the clinic um, and her blood pressures were controlled. So coming to the labs. Um, so the lab which I had was like in July of 2020, creatine of 1.9. I don't have any prior labs prior to that. Then in October, when a PCP noticed it was 2.1, that's when she was referred to me. And when I saw her, her creatine was 1.8 and along hyperkalemia at 5.8. She was also hypoalbuminemic with albumin of 2.8. And she did show um, evidence of anemia with the hemoglobin of 11.3. Her UPC ratio was eight grams. Um, the urine microscopy pretty much looked plant really didn't show any active sediment. So the hepatitis serology, basically she had a surface antibody was positive, consistent with her being previously immunized with hepatitis B. Next. And then we ordered a complement. So most of our complement studies, they actually go to the Mayo. Interestingly, they did a functional complement and apparently it looks like they couldn't do the quantitative complement at that time because of an issue with the reagent. But anyway, this is what I was reported the results at. The functional complement basically showing the functional aspect of the complements were within the normal range. Uh, and then her anchor panel, her C anchor, P anchor was negative, but then the MPO and PR3 with trees mildly positive at that values of 0.6 and 0.8. The cutoff is 0.4. I did a monoclonal study, basically showed no monoclonal protein. She did have some elevated cap and, cap and lambda free light chain with a ratio of 1.34 that was consistent with her renal insufficiency. I also did a PLA2, which was negative. And then I actually went ahead and did a biopsy. Um, so these, these are the additional labs which we got after the biopsy. I don't know if you want to show the biopsy first. Yeah. Sorry, Sorry. I think this, I, I, uh, I put it. Uh, yeah, I forgot to delete them. Sorry. Um, okay, so... Um, so this uh, is a, a low magnification of uh, of the patient's biopsy. It overall had this uh, appearance. Um, it did show 33 glomeruli and five were globally sclerosed. Uh, so this is already, you know, significant for a patient that's 23 years old. Um, so the, the glomeruli, as you see, have like a spectrum of, of changes. Um, some of them look globally sclerosed. Others appear segmentally sclerosed uh, with some pink material here that we, we're going to uh, look uh, at a higher magnification. And then we have um, these uh, glomeruli here that appear, uh, they, don't, they don't appear normal cellular. Um, they have some... Um, 
increased cellularity uh, on them. Besides, so they have this appearance where we call uh, lobulated, which means uh, that they are, I think I'm having interference with uh, somebody has a... Yeah, there is, uh, I don't know who Odai is, but uh, you can get yourself. Okay, I'll text him, I'll text him, it's okay. Okay. Um, so uh, basically we have uh, the most of the glomeruli, the ones that were not globally sclerosed, appear lobulated and, uh, you know, we call this a... Um, Kind of like a tree appearance. Um, they they have expansion of the mesangial areas and also um, the intracapillary areas. Although a very few are, you can still see some lumen, but most of the um, most of the glomerular capillary loops are occluded with um, by means of hyper increased cellularity with also mesangial hypercellularity, and we can see this pink depositions both within the mesangial areas, but also um, giving the appearance of double contours. Um, and I think we have a, even a higher uh, magnification here, giving the appearance of double contours in some of the capillary loops. So a proliferative appearing glomerulus. And this is just, this is a silver stain, which highlights um, the capillary loops in black but deposits don't stain with the silver and the counter stain is HNE. So the, the uh, deposits will stain pink with, with, uh, with silver stain. This is actually uh, another biopsy from a normal glomerulus just to compare the appearance of uh, the glomerulus from this patient and a normal glomerulus. So you can see the mesangial areas are markedly expanded with these uh, depositions and um, also intracapillary hypercellularity, therefore a globally proliferative glomerulus. Um, this is even a higher magnification showing this appearance of trend tracking or double contouring of the glomerular capillary loops. You can see a black uh, line here, which is the glomerular basement membrane. Then you can see this pink deposition and then another possible uh, neoformed uh, glomerular basement, glomerular capillary loops. And we also see this in other areas of the glomerulus. The tubular interstitium um, showed, um, did show some fibrosis. This is an area where there were, there was not a lot of fibrosis. So you have a spectrum of acute injury where uh, proximal tubules are dilated, but they don't have um, a lot in terms of um, uh, basement membrane thickening. So these are, you know, just normal tubules, but with some evidence of acute injury. Interestingly, we have um, these uh, structures here. Um, I, if somebody can, somebody, uh, one of the fellows, do you know what these uh, cells are? How do we call these cells? So we call these foamy cells. Um, so they um, usually they indicate protein overload. 
we see them in some, we see them more frequently in some diseases, although they're not specific for any disease, but they usually indicate protein overload. Um, in patients with membranous nephropathy, we see them, uh, you know, in patients that have significant proteinuria, and they are not uncommon in patients with uh, uh, like a chronic, uh, a more chronic outport uh, syndrome, and also with uh, um, uh, dense deposit disease and C3GN. So this is just to show this is a um, very, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's an interesting um, finding where we call them foamy interstitial cells. So immunofluorescence um, showed predominantly C3 staining in the glomeruli and both capillary and mesangial staining with C3. And it was um, uh, graded as a three plus in a scale from zero to four. Um, there was also co-staining for IgM. Uh, it was weaker than uh, C3 and sparser than C3, but it was present. And we, uh, we actually see this kind of blotchy staining for IgM in a few capillary loops. And just, um, just bear, bear this in mind, what, we, what I mean by blotchy staining, uh, you know, in terms of what the, this means in pathology. But you can also see some IgM around the capillary loops and less in mesangium. Uh, there was also a Mild C3, mild to uh, mild IgG, mild to moderate. Um, so, but the stronger ones were C3 definitely and IgM. And then we had like trace minimal to negative IgA and completely negative uh, C1Q here. C1Q was completely negative. Um, again, uh, this is a higher magnification of the C3, and you can see besides these granular capillary loop deposits and mesangial deposits, you can see this um, round, more like blotchy staining. Um, when we see this with C3 and plus or minus um, other immunoglobulins, we have to think if, even if, the, if even if they are not present in the IF uh, in the uh, light microscopy sample, uh, we have to call the attention, particularly in the setting of an uh, a, a MPGN or a membranoproliferative glomerulonephritis, which is the case here, for cryoglobulins. Um, Although, you know, cryoglobulins, when you have the definitive diagnosis, when you look uh, on uh, electron microscopy, but not always because cryoglobulin is very unstable. So not always on EM, you are able to prove the tubulocylindrical substructure that you see in classic cryoglobulinemic glomerulonephritis. So here is the electron microscopy and we have um, significant and conspicuous and large um, mesangial electron dense deposits. Some are subepithelial. Um, uh, although um, there were there were no not a there was not a global subepithelial meaning like a membranous pattern of, of glomerulonephritis, but there, there were areas where you had the subepithelial electron dense deposits. And you also had, we also had subendothelial electron dense deposits with some neomembranes. So you have the original glomerular basement membrane here. We have the subepithelial intramembranous deposits. Then you have the subendothelial deposit with some um, neomembrane trying to 
encase these deposits. You also have intracapillary uh, endothelial cell edema, and you have, you know, which, you know, corresponds to the findings that we have on light microscopy of occluded um, glomerular capillary spaces. And on the <laughs> urine side, you have a significant food process effacement, likely secondary to the uh, immune complex process that's that's going on. Uh, you can see in some areas there are significant deposits, but we were not able to actually find a cryoglobulin substructure in them. They just have a granular substructure. Um, interestingly, we also had in the sub, uh, in the, inside the endothelial cells, we had the tubular reticular inclusions, which are so-called interference footprints that we can see in immune complex uh, autoimmune. They're more typical of systemic autoimmune disease. Also, they're not by any means super specific for anything, but um, we see them more frequently in systemic autoimmune disease, namely lupus, nephritis, um, but we also see them in viral infections and um, in other interferon releasing states such as interferon treatment. Okay, so these are the labs following the biopsy. So she then had a ANA screen, which was positive with a dense fine speckled pattern with the titer of 1 is to 160. I thought I got the cryoglobulin too, based on uh, my discussion with the pathologist, whether this is an MPG and related to that, but that was negative. Then SSA and SSA SSB antibody was negative too. Then I got her referred to rheumatology at the university uh, who basically repeated the labs down there. So interestingly, her C3 and C4 at the university was actually low, and she had a speckled uh, pattern uh, of the ANA uh, with the title of 1S to 160. Um, no, she did have, a she really didn't fulfill the criteria for having a real lupus based on the clinical symptoms uh, other than just having more of joint subluxation, but then she really didn't have any symptoms related to lupus per se. And I think rheumatology too agreed that they were not dealing with lupus. Uh, the other antibodies which they ordered, they were all negative too. Yeah, in terms of the biopsy and the diagnosis that was given was membranoproliferative glomerulonephritis, immune complex mediated. Um, so in the, in the comment, um, you know, the biopsy demonstrated an immune complex MPGN with prominent C3 IgM deposits, although C3 was dominant. And it, all, it also had this focal intense intracapillary staining, meaning that uh, the blotch is staining. By EM, uh, there were segmental duplication of GBM with numerous deposits in you know, uh, all the subendothelial, subepithelial, and mesangial aspects. And the differential diagnosis at that point included cryoglobulinemic glomerulonephritis, which was followed up and excluded, basically. Um, dysregulation of complement pathways, given the C3 uh, was the most intense uh, staining, uh, meaning C3 glomerulonephritis, just calling the attention where the C1Q was completely negative. 
and the C1Q is the one that we more classically correlate with lupus nephritis. Um, also, you know, immunotectoid glomerulonephritis given the blotchy uh, deposits. However, again, we did not see substructure um, and uh, also, you know, primary MPGN. So um, given the negative serology for hep C um, that we, it was suggested that we did the rheumatoid factor, but they were all negative. Um, and then I also exclude the possibility of infection, um, which was excluded. And now that, you know, some time passed and this patient continues to have this, um, the, some, some evidence of immune complex of glomerulonephritis. And also, you know, the calling of the attention for the TRIs uh, for lupus and viral infections, but these were also excluded. So um, just, you know, open to comments and opinions whether we should take it from, we should take from here. Um, basically, should we, um, you know, now consider more strongly the possibility of C3GN. I, I will open for discussion for Dr. Nestor's opinion and anybody else's opinion. I have a question. Mm -hmm. Why are you not calling this just lupus nephritis without systemic lupus? Again, we did not, you know, in uh, the, uh, from just, you know, the biopsy aspect, the C1Q was negative. We did not have a full house. And uh, we normally do not call lupus nephritis even when you have like a full, you know, when you have a full house and everything classic for lupus, uh, we do have to correlate it clinically as well. You know, if the patient does have a history of lupus, then, you know, we would strongly correlate with that and suggest that the leading diagnostic possibility would be lupus nephritis. But even, you know, with that, this is not the case here. Thank but you. Good question. Yeah. Yeah. So you're pointing out the problem with having to rely on a biopsy diagnosis without associated clinical parameters that actually help you because I actually would agree with the membrane proliferative glomerulonephritis immune complex mediated type, if you will. If you were to reread the biopsy and say that the C3 was three plus and the IgG was one plus, then you could think about this being C3G. It doesn't meet the criteria if you keep the IgG two plus. And that's very unfortunate because we can all agree it's rather silly to you know hang our hat on that one plus difference, if you will. But it does change substantially the way you look at the patient. Uh, because there are no specific biomarkers that you can do that confirm with 100% certainty what, you know, what this patient's actual diagnosis is. So I thought about the case a little bit as you all were talking, and I had a few questions, which I think probably we don't have the answer to, but I heard about chronic ear infections. Did I also hear about a tooth abscess or, or something like that? Yes, she did uh, have a tooth abscess probably a year, year and a half ago. And then she reported having ear infection at least once a year or so. So re recent infections, though, is like, for instance, is the tooth abscess issue still ongoing? Are the ear infections no. ongoing? No, no, okay. the, uh, the no. The, the time when I saw her in December, she was just completing a course of antibiotics for uh, ear infection, per se. That's the only thing I can know. But uh, uh, when, when, when this all started with her having 
edema just the summer of 2020 she just said the edema and stuff was pretty abrupt and i really didn't have any associated uh, sickness around that time to really explain that so so the reason i asked that is because the the diagnostic criteria require that you meet the you know two orders of magnitude difference as already discussed but also that there not be a concurrent or an associated infection. And you all may know that we're trying to even change the name somewhat from post-infections GN to even infection-associated GN, not unlike someone who has uh, you know, shunt nephritis or endocarditis, nephritis, et cetera. But the, the thing that you know, impresses me is, is that um, you, know, you sort of have pan-immune issues with her, you know, with the initial PR3 and MPO positive, the initial ANA positive, uh, these things that look like uh, cryos on our biopsy, which for me suggests chronic infection, even if it's not C, it could be a chronic gram negative, for instance. You just have a lot of things to me that suggest that she had had or has a chronic infection that then therefore, you know, even your, your, your light chain elevations can be related to chronic infection. So um, if I back up and, and, you know, the background is that if we're going to call that IgG2+, plus, then this does not technically meet the criteria for C3G. If you drop the IgG down to 1+, plus, then it doesn't meet the criteria for C3G if you say that she just got off antibiotics. And so in theory, all of this sort of gives you some problems calling that particular biopsy C3G. Also, you have both uh, low C3 and C4. Which is more consistent with an immune complex GN, which is, right. again, either related to an idiopathic form or, again, a chronic infection for her. So um, having said all that, I think, you know, technically it's hard to call her, yes, you know, the pathology term is C3 dominant glomerulonephritis, but that term refers both to infection associated and C3G. So the clinician has to make the call. And I think based on the criteria, you can't technically call this C3G, but it is true that based on uh, you know, data uh, published both in the French setting and in the Italian group that immune complex GN patients just as frequently have underlying complement dysregulation. So if your question to me is, what do you do next? Well, you know, I think it's reasonable to consider complement biomarkers. And, and of course, you all know my bias. I work in a complement lab. But um, it's reasonable to consider complement biomarkers to figure out if there truly is complement dysregulation driving this disease. If there isn't, the biomarkers are likely to be fairly bland. Maybe if this is post-infectious, there's a little bit of factor B autoantibody. With her you know, CKD slash AKI, there'll be some BA. So we'll be able to tell on the biomarker panel if there is truly ongoing complement dysregulation. And, and so maybe that's useful for you. I wouldn't, uh, my personal opinion, I wouldn't launch on genetics or anything for her because I think you've got enough confusing picture, not, you know, to again, not put her in the C3G box. But at the end of the day, unfortunately, you're gonna end up just having treat, you know, more or less generically her, her MPGN pattern, whether it's, you know, immune complex mediated or C3G, whatever it is, you're gonna to have to attempt to treat it, it seems, because it sounds like she's still nephrotic. And I wanted to ask Danny, you know, Danny, we see this in kids, those uh, foam cells in kids, obviously with minimal change. Do they look exactly the same in this setting as they would in that setting? 
they do, they do look exactly the same. However, um, you know, there can be, depending on the degree of proteinuria, they can be more or less uh, foamy cells. And actually in this one, it was just very focal and it was there. It's more like, you know, I showed it more like as a, an interesting finding for the, you know, for learning. Yeah. Yeah, so, so again, I mean, the, the point, I guess, is, is that uh, I, would, I agree with the immune complex GN uh, diagnosis, and I, uh, I think, like uh, Moni pointed out, that is consistent with both uh, C3 and C4 being low, though we can admit that some C3G patients do have a low C4 also. But, um, so the treatment is going, to, uh, is going to be guided towards more of a, you know, a, that sort of idiopathic picture. And then for sure, if it looks like she has a chronic infection somewhere, you have to treat her or find out why she's doing it. Um, if it, you know, if it turns out that she had like overwhelming chronic infections, you could think about the more esoteric things like, you know, does she have a T cell problem? Does she have, you know, some sort of genetic abnormality that sets her up for chronic infections? But I, I'm not clear in my head that, that that's the kind of picture that she has. Well, I was, I was going to point out to a chronic infection as well, because if you look at the degree of scarring and the uh, degree of uh, proteinuria, this wouldn't be consistent uh, with, uh, you know, frequent uh, acute infections. Uh, again, I would also think uh, more chronic infection. And the other that, thing... That degree of MPO and PR3 is, is consistent with a chronic infection, you know, that was seen earlier and gone now, that sort of thing. Also, with the degree of, as you suggested, Carla, pan activation of the immune system uh, was also thinking of a drug-related uh, effect. And I, I don't know I, if you, I don't remember if you showed uh, what uh, meds she is on, uh, but uh, uh, I think she was just taking uh, lisinopril, and then she was just on uh, multivitamins. Other than that, she was not on any other medication. Do you know when she presented in July last year, did she have uh, blood and protein or urine or, that, or just that elevated creatinine? Unfortunately, I did not have any lab work yeah. from that particular visit. So the elevated cre creatinine was probably noticed in October. And then she had one lab reading with the creatinine of 1.9 in July. I, I, I couldn't get the urine for that particular visit. That would push me more towards a uh, more chronic process also if she's, you know, which could be any of the above, C3G or immune complex GN, et cetera. If she truly did uh, in July, Danny already pointed this out, if she truly in, in July already had evidence for glomerulonephritis, you know, I mean, because a 1.9 and a 23-year-old is not normal, so she had AKI even then, or CKD, I guess, but she had blood in her urine, she had her elevated creatinine, if she also had proteinuria, she could have already been having uh, signs of glomerulonephritis at that time, and, you know, you, you, like I think D Danny was alluding to, if this were post, you know, the classic post-infectious, by now she should be getting over all of the above, right? So this is not the classic post-infectious. This is more likely to be the infection associated, if it is infection related, infection associated, something like I said, akin to that patient who has, you know, the, the, the shunt nephritis or the, you know, the, the endocarditis-like picture, if you will. Um, and that definitely makes it harder because until you get rid of the infection, you're not going to get rid of the glomerulonephritis if this has really been going on since July. Uh, so 
let's say that the IgG was one plus, then would that be an indication for a more extensive workup for for fun? I know that she did this functional panel at Mayo, which I think it's different from the functional panel that we do here. But um, yeah, again, you know, I, it, it is worth it. It does seem reasonable to me to do the C3G functional panel here. I'm not sure the Mayo, uh, when they say functional, they often mean a CH50, uh, et cetera. But, but I'm, I'm not 100% clear. But, um, but uh, yes, it would be, in my mind, useful to see the C3G functional panel. Again, you won't be able to call this patient C3G because an exclusion criteria for the diagnosis was recent infection within the last 12 weeks. And I, mm -hmm. I think I heard she was on antibiotics within the month of, of biopsy. Yes. So, but, but that's, honestly, that's semantics. And that was, you know, a poor decision to, you know, obviously make this diagnosis hinge on only the biopsy, but there wasn't much else we could, we could do about it. But, but again, if you want to be a purist, you can't call her C3G, even if you make that IgG1+, because she was actively being treated for an infection within 12 weeks of that finding. And it's, this has been published in textbooks and manuscripts all over that 30% of post-infectious or infection-related patients can have, you know, the same criteria as a C3G patient, you know, so predominant C3 deposition or even isolated C3 deposition. So, but, but not being able to call the C3G um, is really, like I said, a semantic issue. If, if underlying complement dysregulation is driving her disease, you'd like to know that. Now, of course, Moni's going to say to me, well, what are you going to do about it? Because there isn't anything you can do about it right now because there isn't a prescribable anti-complement therapeutic that would go at what I'm guessing is complement. If her complement dysregulation is happening and it's upstream, it's not... Um, it's not likely to be terminal pathway, but again, I don't know that until I would see the data. Okay, then I'll probably get the functional complement studies then. How is she and doing like, now? How's the patient? Uh, she, she uh, actually, I actually started her on uh, uh, steroids and she seems to be doing okay. And I'm going to see her probably next week. Um, what does okay mean? Uh, in a sense that uh, her edema is not there and overall she feels good. So it could be consistent with post-infections. Yeah. One random thing to note for her too would be if she does have one of these um, hypermobility syndromes, she could have a risk of bicuspid aortic valve and that would predispose her to infective endocarditis too, especially considering she had a dental abscess. Okay. So that to me is pretty scary, but I, I don't know if anyone else has any. Uh, yeah, I was going to kind of suggest the same thing before, you know, before starting her on immunosuppression, if you want to, I don't know if you, she needs to see an infectious disease specialist, but thinking of uh, those, uh, some of those chronic infections that are more indolent and sure. uh, could get worse with uh, immunosuppressive therapies. Okay. Um, Just... Okay, so I'll just move on to the um, second case. It was gonna, it's a short case, it's just a follow-up case, but very interesting development uh, from Dr. Sengvi, and then we had the third case from Dr. Nuruddin. So uh, this is um, basically, uh, I, I know he's gonna, he's gonna add some to this, but this is how we got the, you know, how we received the biopsy. It's from actually 2017. Uh, 
66-year-old female that presented with acute kidney injury and a serum creatinine of 15.87 showed uh, hematuria on her urinalysis and a 24-hour protein of 3.4. But at that time, serologists were painting and uh, just let the Dr. Senghi is going to, you know, do the follow-up. So the, just to show the biopsy, um, had 18 glomeruli. And, and as you can see, this is one glomerulus, which has a uh, cellular crescent and some uh, necro necrosis, cariorexis. And out of the 18 glomeruli, six had kind of this appearance with fibrinoid necrosis and or cellular crescent. Uh, other eight glomeruli were ranging from either no crescents to fibrocellular and fibrous crescents, so um, some element of chronicity, and four of 18 were uh, global sclerose. What is interesting as a finding in this biopsy as well is that um, not always we see um, this finding in patients that have this uh, kind of pathology, but in this case, we had a necrotizing granuloma outside of the glomeruli. And we also had necrotizing vasculitis. You can see that here's a vessel with the muscle, uh, therefore an artery, and the um, wall, the intimal wall is completely necrotic. So, you know, true necrotizing vasculitis lesions. Uh, for immunofluorescence, the, um, I, I exemplified the IgG here because, um, you know, in this case, we are thinking about a pulse immune versus anti-GBM disease, just to show that the IgG was negative, but the fibrin was actually uh, positive in glomeruli that had crescents or fibrinoid necrosis. There were no glomeruli, viable glomeruli present for EM, so we did not do EM, but the IF was basically negative except for fibrin. And uh, this is the follow-up. And uh, actually, we did the serology ended up being positive for ANCA, right? Yeah, it was C-ANCA positive. The title was 1S24,000 with PR3 reported to be greater than 8. So she was basically treated with rituximab. And as you can see from the graph, I was able to take her off dialysis after in a year, and I still have her on maintenance rituximab, and her last creatinine was up to 2.75. Yeah, so okay. some, some do come out of, of dialysis, which is yeah. good. Um, okay, um, then I have the, the third case. Um, which I will just switch here. I did a, a little bit of history, but Dr. Nouridine also sent me um, uh, a presentation. Okay, let's see, slideshow from the current slide. So can you see this hypercalcemia slide? Yes. Okay, so do you wanna take over Dr. Nouridine? Or sure. Okay. All right, thanks everyone. So uh, I can give you the remote control. Okay. Uh, or you can just advance the slides. Okay. okay. <laughs> All right. Okay. So um, this is a case of a patient. I, uh, I came on service the following day after the patient was admitted. Uh, next slide. It's um, a 63-year-old Caucasian female patient who follows with us in, in, uh, um, in renal clinic with uh, Dr. Kuo. 
It's her patient, actually. Um, the patient has TKD3, baseline creatinine of 1.6 to 2. She hovers around 1.8, and her GFR is 30. Um, it's, it was thought that her um, CKD is from diabetes and hypertension. Um, other history, she has low back pain. Um, I guess I wrote that twice. Lumbar disc herniation, GERD, hyperlipidemia, and hypothyroidism. So she presented to Mercy Hospital early in December with crampy abdominal pain and was hospitalized for a few days there. And she had uh, described a 20 pound weight loss over the last three months and was diagnosed with diverticulitis at Mercy and was treated with antibiotics and IV fluids. Now, I don't know if she was found to be hypercalcemic there, but she presented to Dr. Kuo's clinic on the 13th of January uh, with hypercalcemia and a calcium of 14.8. And Dr. Kuo admitted her for further workup. And I kind of looked back at her calciums. She hadn't really had a history of hypercalcemia chronically. In fact, um, she's been at 8.9 to 9.2 and her highest calcium was 10.2 in February of 2020. So about eight months prior. Next slide. Um, upon further questioning, I mean, this lady got the million dollar workup. Uh, we were consulted and we were so thorough, but I mean, rheumatology was consulted, endocrinology was consulted and, uh, and actually um, oncology was consulted and nobody really had any additional recommendations. The patient had no history of kidney stones, no neck surgeries. She had a tailbone fracture in the remote past. Um, she initially didn't report any history of cancer, but upon you know, further biopsy of her chart, she had a rectal squamous carcinoma in situ um, that was on biopsy uh, here at, at, at uh, the university in 2011. Um, she, take, she takes like vitamin D on and off, really not excessively over the past two, and, two to three years. She does consume um, dairy products, eats cheese frequently, um, use Tums only infrequently, one to two tabs, you know, every month or so, and no prolonged exposure to light. She works as a janitor in uh, Midwest One Bank, so she doesn't work out in the fields or anything. So her exam was really unremarkable here. There wasn't really much to her exam. Um, she had some facial hair. Her skin was dry. Um, she was alert and oriented um, the whole time. Next slide. Um, so her initial calciums, again, were 14.8 up to 15.2, and then over the next few days, slowly decreased with IV fluid hydration initially. That was gentle. Uh, I don't know if she got some Lasix here and there, but and initially she was really running in the 12s, um, and I followed her a day after her admission um, with the renal consult team. She did come in with AKI with a peak creatinine of 3.3. Um, and uh, I'm sorry, a peak creatinine of four actually, and her discharge creatinine was 3.7. So uh, we did the full workup. Her PTH was suppressed appropriately. Her PTHRP surprisingly was low and not high. Um, TSH was uh, low to normal-ish. I think this is within normal. Alkafos wasn't really significant. Her 25 hydroxy vitamin D levels were normal. Her 125 hydroxy vitamin D came back high. It was 105 and the upper limit of normal is 79. Um, they checked an ACE level and that was a little bit high, 73, and the normal is up to 52. She had an SPEP that was negative for a monoclonal um, antibody or spike protein. Um, so we were like, you know, what is going on here? Um, so we finally recommended a PET scan um, and that was done of like from neck downwards and that didn't include the head. Um, that did not show any signs of malignancy. Um, it was symmetrical increased activity within the inferior bilateral gluteus maximus, which really didn't mean and mean much. We didn't really, uh, it wasn't really significant. Um, and then I think rheumatology recommended a brain CT to rule out sarcoidosis, you know, 
of that, and that was normal. Um, during the workup prior to the PET scan, she did have a chest, abdomen, pelvis CT that showed a single paratracheal superior mediastinal normal-sized soft tissue nodule. And they, they mentioned in the read that they can't rule out an ectopic parathyroid process, but her PTH was, again, you know, suppressed and PTHRP was low. Um, she did have bilateral adrenal nodules, presumably benign is what they read the CT scan as. And then when I looked back at the chart, she is in Dr. Dixon's finerenone study. That's just something to, on the side. So, I mean, uh, we went through everything and pending workup at the time of discharge. So she was hospitalized from the 13th to the 24th, pretty prolonged hospitalization, trying to figure out where this high calcium is coming from. Um, she had a quantiferon gold, which was came back negative. She had um, atypical antifungal um, coccidiohisto, uh, which were, all came back negative. They were pending at time of discharge. So our working you know, diagnosis was either malignancy or some sort of granulomatous process or sarcoidosis. Did you have a CBC with differential? Uh, leukemia slash lymphoma can also cause vitamin one twenty five, vitamin yeah. D one twenty five elevation. Yeah, so we were thinking lymphoma, and that's why we even had them. We requested that they call oncology and maybe do a bone biopsy. But oncology came the last day and said there's nothing. Her CBC was normal. Her white count was nine point one. Um, hemoglobin was twelve. Her differential was normal. And um, I don't think uh, with a PET scan that would light up either. Yeah, it wouldn't light up, exactly. We thought she, maybe she would benefit from a flow cytometry study with bone biopsy tissue. Right. You know? They didn't do it. They didn't think it was indicated. That was on, you know, they were consulted a couple of days prior to discharge and they didn't think she had lymphoma. Thank you. Uh, so the biopsy, it was very interesting. Um, even from the time we actually uh, were triaging the case, I. I, I almost never get paged to, to the gross room, but the PAs uh, were having a hard time finding glomeruli. And uh, when I got there, uh, I could see that there were some pale round areas. And I even discussed, I don't know if I'll die, my resident, the pathologist resident is here, but we were discussing, see, I, I think these are gonna be mostly globally sclerosed glomeruli, but we still need to, you know, follow the sample. The sample had um, uh, the, majority of the sample was medulla, which in this case was actually very interesting because you can see that in this medullary section, um, we had a little bit of unattached cortex um, from the triaging, but um, in this medullary section, you can see um, many uh, of these uh, red cells with, uh, you know, cells with a red cytoplasm, cytoplasm that have granules and had a have a bilobe nucleus, which are eosinophils. So we did have um, interstitial nephritis actually in the medulla area. Uh, when we see interstitial nephritis with eosinophils in the medullary section, uh, we need to suggest some kind of drug, uh, allergic drug reaction. Eosinophils can be reactive to other things, including, um, you know, autoimmune disease and so forth, but the first one is always drug. Um, other areas um, of the biopsy, which did have some moderate interstitial fibrosis, tubular atrophy, but had also some chronic interstitial inflammation, but also had these here. Um, you know, definitely there, there is some element of acute tubular injury with the proteinaceous casts. 
Um, and also this here. Um, don't know if uh, somebody like one of the fellows wants to take a shot at what these are uh, and actually here. Giant cells? Uh, we have reactive cells. I wouldn't call them giant cells for the, at this point, but we do have reactive cells with these uh, purple roundish and some dust like material. I wish they were, you know, I don't wish they were because of the patient, but if they were giant cells, we, it would make our diagnosis more straightforward, but I, we couldn't find them. Um, so this is calcium phosphate. And as you can see, the, the calcium phosphate is both inside the tubules with an element of tubular injury going on. Like you can see the cells that are sloughing to inside the tubules, but also around the renal tubules here uh, with this um, calcium phosphate mic microcalcifications. Other areas of the biopsy showed um, this Basophilic, so the characteristic of, of um, calcium phosphate microcrystals is they're, they're usually basophilic, meaning that they are going to be purple on HNE. And they are also, um, in this case, because I saw quite frequently this, uh, these calcium phosphate, but the biopsy was um, limited, I did order a von sustain, which stains phosphate. Um, and it, it does stain black, uh, the, the elements of phosphate. So just to confirm that they were calcium phosphate microcalcifications, this is just a, a tubule with the same horsehole protein here, some element of, of injury. Um, so there is an element of both acute interstitial nephritis, acute tubular injury with what we call um, elements of nephrocalcinosis because of the calcium. Um, phosphate. And um, just looking at the glomeruli, so we had actually 22 glomeruli, but 19 were globally sclerosed. So of these uh, three non-globally, uh, the three non-globally sclerosed glomeruli, one was in the light microscopy, which, which, which was this one, and it does have uh, some mesangial expansion. The patient is diabetic, uh, some mild increase in cellularity, but it doesn't look markedly proliferative to me. However, it's just one glomerulus that we had, which was viable by light microscopy. And you can see two other glomeruli that are neighbor to it here, which are globally sclerosed. Um, the Congo red stain and the DNA JB9 was negative. Uh, we did, just in case, sent it to him, Pat, so the patient was also seen by specialists within the biopsy, so hematopathology did not, you know, they, they agreed that the inflammation was mixed. It didn't have any elements of that, of, you know, monoclonal or monotypical cells that they didn't even feel that they should work up this further. Um, so just chronic inflammation. Um, other areas of the biopsy did show um, that, that same glomerulus here um, that had uh, hyalur, arteriolar hyaline sclerosis and arteriosclerosis. So a component of background diabetic, possible diabetic nephropathy and chronic vascular hypertensive disease. And um, by IF, interestingly, we had just minimal C3, although her C3 blood levels are not 
uh, they're not low and you know we don't have uh, much in terms of proliferative glomerulonephritis, but she did have a little bit of C3, which raises the possibility of a remote low grade or you know, ongoing um, subclinical infectious process. Um, but this is you know, just a second, something secondary or maybe even incidental. And um, also we did a cap and lambda both by you know, you know, our regular panel and by pronase and the cap and lambda stained uh, tubular protein droplets and tubular cas um, nearly equally. The kappa usually tends to be, have a difference of a one plus between the cap and lambda, but the lambda was positive. And um, so the EM had 11 glomeruli, but all were globally sclerosed. So, um, we weren't able to perform the EM, um, so um, you know to evaluate for deposits. But um, so we diagnosed this as a you know tubular interstitial inflammation with eels, rule out drug or other causes for AIN with some acute tubular injury nephrocalcinosis, probably reflects off this high calcium that she has. But we did not see granulomas or lymphoma, which is good, actually. Um, and then um, some elements of chronic disease. We did mention the minimal C3 stain, um, and we uh, said no clear diagnostic evidence of renal involvement by paraprotein. So we did the, this comment, you know, explaining the possibility of acute on chronic, um, you know, tubular interstitial disease. So um, yeah, this is this is it for this case. So any improvement? Uh, did you did you treat her with? Yeah, so we did. We ended up. I mean, looking back, her eosinophils were. Um, let's see here. On admission, she had actually a count of five hundred, but she's had that before in the past. So and then it, it kind of it you know trickled down the five seventy and then three sixty and then immediately dropped to fifty, then sixty, then eighty. Um, so we ended up giving her a prednisone taper, although she's diabetic and I think she's hyperglycemic. Interestingly, so her discharge calcium was 11. She just presented, so she was discharged on the 23rd or 24th of January. And she looks like in her chart, she presented to the ED on the 28th because she was told by her PCP that her creatinine had gone up to 4.0 from 3.7 from discharge. And her calcium level was 11 as well. So no improvement, but... Um, you know, I'm just th thinking, what are the thoughts? Dr. Quo is scheduled to see her tomorrow. Thankfully, she has an appointment with us. But I mean, does she need, I mean, is there some, I mean, the only thing that makes sense here is there, is there a granuloma that's not been diagnosed? Is that one small paratracheal, you know, lymph node worth biopsying? Or do we need to even consider the bilateral adrenal nodules? Is there a possibility that there's, you know, granuloma there? I don't wanna to be too invasive with this patient, but we really don't really know why she's hypercalcemic. And just to remind everybody, she did have diverticulitis in December, which could explain the C3. Any thoughts? Hey, Hey, I tell you what, I have similar two cases, essentially the same lab result you have, except the kidney function a little bit better. Uh, actually, one of them was on dialysis for several months until we actually treated him with prednisone and got off dialysis very quickly. Uh, both of them uh, treated with steroid for probably a month or two, and we stopped prednisone in both and remained in remission. Both of them had million bucks workup, uh, maybe granuloma in the, in the lung somewhere, lymph, lymph nodes, 
Uh, we had multiple biopsies. Eventually, we kind of gave up on it. They just treated them as such. And both in the dramatic improvement with prednisone therapy, and they got better. We actually able to stop prednisone. Lab exactly the same. One twenty five dihydroxycalciprol, high ACE, a little bit high. Everything else, the PTH suppressed, and so on. Uh, the kidney function, as you know, probably from the kidney, just terrible. That, that has nothing to do with the calcium. I mean, her baseline creatinine is two. So, but this kind of really, you know, tipped everything over, right? That calcium caused an AKI. Um, so we did do that. You know, she's on prednisone. It's she's been on it for since the 23rd. So she's been on it for five days so far. It might yeah. be too early to see an improvement, but um, yeah. Uh, and then I see Lewis said in the chat box that um, their granulomatous interstitial nephritis caused by drugs. That's true. We did go back on the day of discharge. I sat at the side of the bed and she swore on her life nothing. She's taking Tylenol, no NSAIDs, no over-the-counter drugs, no herbal teas. Um, so. I could look at her meds again, but it's just, this is puzzling. Well, you have yeah, to just, uh, I'm sorry, go ahead. So well, I was going to say, as go far ahead. as kidney function go, you're probably not going to get much back with that, de with that degree of chronicity. Yeah. Right. You, you need an answer for the cause of the hypercalcemia, which is what you're looking for. Yeah. And we're not, I mean, she's on amlodipine, citalopram, cyclobenzaprine, Lasix. So Lasix can cause an AIN. I mean, glipizide, levothyroxine, metoprolol, pioglitazone. And then we added her, we added potassium citrate to her regimen just to kind of help with the calcium. But, you know, I don't know how much of it is oxalate, how much of it is phosphate. I know she stained for phosphate, so I hope this doesn't make it worse. Quetiapine, that's it, and simvastatin. Yeah, I just as an addendum, and I, I, uh, I just briefly mentioned to Dr. Nuridin, we, we, you know, patients that sometimes stick to your, you know, the findings kind of stick to, um, I, I mentioned to her when we discussed about a patient that had had phones, but actually it was my mistake. It was actually a patient that, it was actually a pediatric patient that had polyglandular autoimmune syndrome um, that, that um, did have acute interstitial nephritis with calcium. And they were also trying to exclude sarcoid but actually did not show the granulomas that we like to see, but did show some calcium phosphate microcalcification. Just something that, you know, I, I remember this patient. Um, so given the gland, you know, that those findings in the glands maybe raise the possibility of an autoimmune interstitial nephritis, which is eosinophil rich instead of being plasma cell rich. Uh, with the men syndromes, you have hyperparathyroidism, which she doesn't have. Right. We, we did a C3 and C4, and that was normal. We did an ANA and an ANCA. I mean, we overshot, you know, we kind of did everything. That was all negative. So would anybody biopsy her <laughs> adrenals? No. no. <laughs> I know. It's no. just, I think it's a drug allergy and we don't know what it is. I mean, maybe Lasix. I don't know. Yeah. Right. Just as a last remark, um, we changed our requisition for the in-house biopsies in order to make it easier for everybody. Maybe some of you already saw this, but just to make you aware um, that now we have this hard stop for the nephrologist to be called or paged with the preliminary results because, you know, the schedules were, when we look at the schedules, it's really very, very complicated to us to find out who is actually on call. And um, 
not always. I, I, I think most of the time who does the biopsy is not the person who is on call for the patient. So uh, if you can kindly, you know, just fill out who wishes to be called. We did put this optional preference if you want to be paged, texted, or emailed, but this is just optional. We will end up finding you <laughs> with, this, with the results. No, we, we need to do that because you're right. Uh, it's not always clear who you need to call. So it will be very helpful for you, I'm sure. Yeah. And I won't be bugging somebody who doesn't want to be bugged. <laughs> All right. Um, I, I think that's, that's what I had. If anybody wants to add anything to the cases. And thank you for everyone's participation. I think this... The only thing I wanted to... I wanted yeah. to add that chronic hypercalcemia does cause chronic interstitial nephritis as well. Uh, right, so and she doesn't have chronic hypercalcemia. That's what's odd. Like her calciums were nine up until this, you know, up until December. <laughs> Thank you. Very stimulating. Thank you. See you next month. Bye.